All right, Luke, we're recording. How you doing? I am swell. Good. I'm swell as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna try something different a little bit. Uh, so far on the Randos channel, we've had just random rando conversations, and we've also had uh, readings where we're actually reading straight from the text. Uh, Julian has done a little bit of a different thing. I don't think they're reading straight from the text. They're just, you know, talking, talking a lot more about ideas that have come from the text. So what I want to do is kind of a, an experiment in kind of like a, a, a tour to take a tour of a book and hopefully if things go well, an entire book series. And so the one that we are focusing on in this conversation is, I've got a cat right here that I'm petting in case anybody's wondering. It's a lap cat. Um, <laughs> is Out of the Silent Planet, um, as is probably evidenced by the title of this video. Uh, Luke and I have been discussing, just having a conversation about this entire, uh, what's called the Space Trilogy series or the Ransom series by C.S. Lewis. It was, I want to say... The second or third, technically second work of fiction, like a novel, maybe the first fiction novel that he ever wrote. Really? Um, I'd have to go back and look at it. I I may be wrong about that, but it was pretty early. Um, And just a little, just quick little backstory. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but what I heard is this, this came about from a conversation between Tolkien and Lewis, where they both decided they wanted to try writing science fiction. It was kind of a challenge to each other. Mm. And they both sat down to write a science fiction novel and Tolkien couldn't find a publisher for his and Lewis could. (laughs) Mm. Interesting. Um, But they both decided to write uh, science fiction stories that they would like to read themselves. And so that's how it came about. And I think um, Tolkien's was more focused on like, uh, maybe focused on time travel. And Lewis's is focused on space travel. And Tolkien's doesn't, like, nobody has it, do they? I don't know. And again, I don't know if this is true. I heard this on a, on a podcast I was listening to. Oh, it's got to be true, though. Somewhere. Yeah, so it's probably 100% true. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, had never, I had never read the Space Trilogy before until a friend of mine, um, he had... Uh, hard copies, paperbacks on his shelf, and he just lent them to me when I was visiting him once in Minneapolis, strangely enough. What a good friend. It was years ago. Because he lent you the books and also because they're from Minneapolis. That's where the best friends are from. Yeah. Uh, He's actually from Texas, but lived in Minneapolis at the time. So he's extra good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And extra Um, big. Uh, yeah, so this was supposed to be 30 seconds. I think I've now spent about five minutes. Um, anyway, I, I read the Space Trilogy. I've read Out of, Silent, Out of the Silent Planet at least two times now. And I've read the other two books only once. And I really, just to, to bring this intro to a close on my part, um, I want you to say something too, Luke, if you've got anything to say. But the reason that I really wanted to do this with you is because I know that you love this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these books and so I really wanted to see this through your eyes and see the things that you see um, so that I could get a better appreciation for it 
Um, I already do love Lewis, of course, but yeah. um, this was one where I read it, I enjoyed it um, enough, but nothing really stuck with me. But fiction doesn't really grab me all that well, at least in, at least it hasn't in the past. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to open myself up to um, being able to, to gain better appreciation, particularly for Lewis's fiction. Yeah. Oh man, I just had a thought about that. So, so first I want to start off and say, just because you remind me of it, why I've given, I've talked about before my hierarchy of book genres and what I love the most. And I think quality mm-hmm. fiction is at the top with like poetry. And the reason that is, and I think this goes philosophically with all of all the stuff that we talk about all the time, but there's just so much more embedded in fiction fiction is teaching you at every level, at every level of your whole being and, and in so much more than you can consciously apprehend. That's why I love it. And I think poetry is doing the same thing. It's inherently transformative. Whereas I think didactic nonfiction propositional stuff. I mean, you got to, to really even manifest it for it to become part of you in the way that it's supposed to, there's so many more steps in between what fiction just does automatically. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So the space trilogy I do love. And the reason is, is because probably of that very thing I was just saying, I, so I've read it, I believe four times now, the whole thing. Um, I read it for the first time, probably, probably almost about really close to 10 years ago. Um, and because of a friend, a friend recommended it. He's actually the friend I was telling you about that we were talking about before this started, <clears throat> which speaks to a lot of his influence. Cause this book <clears throat> in his, I mean, this book has probably influenced me as much as almost any book the, or books. Um, and in ways that I couldn't, that I've come to understand kind of what I was just saying about fiction over time. The more I reread it, the more I grew and evolved, the more I saw like, Oh, that, that's, that's in Lewis or that's in the space trilogy or that's, or this idea that I've just come across. Oh, that I learned that a long time ago or the foundations were laid. Yeah. Realizing it. And, um, so I read it that long ago. Um, I read it at the same time as I was reading Abolition of Man. Uh, I maybe read Abolition of Man first because, and then I learned that essentially that hideous strength is kind of the fictional version of the Abolition of Man, essentially. And uh, I don't know. It, and it just, it's affected me in, in great, great ways. And I try to push it on everyone that I can as much as I can. So that's kind of my background with, huh? Kind of what this video is about. We're trying to push it on everybody who wants to watch this. (laughs) For sure. And it's almost like I say it confidently if, I mean, and maybe some people are like science fiction isn't my genre. I can't get into it. Or people think they aren't fictional people. And I'm just like, what I want to say just as an intro to this if it, if you've never found resonance with it, I say confidently and not judgmentally, but like the problem lies with you. It's just, it's that good. <laughs> it's just, I can't, it's, it's too good. <laughs> no offense. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> right. uh, I, I know in that case, uh, that's the approach that I'm taking is there's, there's probably some growth that I need. There's a, 
some things that I need to open myself up to. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm yeah. trying. And there's so much more there for me too. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure I'll read it many more times throughout my life. So, um, I was reminding us, reminded of something that you said right there, but it's not coming to mind. So I'll just let it, I'll let it go. One of the things that I do wanted to say is if it's not obvious, uh, there are three books in this series. We've been calling it the space trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first book is called out of the silent planet. The second book is called Paralandra. And the third book is called that hideous strength, which Luke, you referenced just a moment ago. Um, we're going to start with out of the silent planet and the aim of this video is to strictly focus on chapter one. So we do things slow here on the Randos channel. <laughs> so I hope you, I hope you have time. Um, most of the people who uh, either watch or listen to these videos are trying to kill some time. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> I hope this helps. Uh, all right. So instead of reading it, what I'm going to attempt, we'll see how successful I am at this. I'm going to try to recount the first chapter. Now I have a little bit of notes, but I'm going to try to go off of memory as best I can. You might see me turning to look at my screen here just to to get some bearings. Um, But as best as I can remember, the the first chapter starts off kind of in the middle of a little bit of a story, maybe the wrong word, but a scene. There are some things that have happened and you're kind of in the midst of the action some action right away, not science fiction action, but some action. So we've got, we've got this man, this main character that we're introduced to immediately who has been sitting under a large um, chestnut tree seeking shelter from a rainstorm. And he's been out on this walking tour of the English countryside. And uh, he had intended, he had planned out his walk so that towards the end of the day, he would have reached um, this town where he could stay in a hotel. And he's apparently been on this walking tour before. And he went to try to, to stay at this hotel um, that he had stayed at before, and it had changed, changed ownership. And they turned him away. And it, it was for no apparent reason, from what we can tell, other than just the disposition of the new innkeeper who seemed to be this lady who just, from the way it's described in the book, didn't like guests, (laughs) which is very funny. So that's used as just a device to show, okay, his plan is already thwarted for what he was trying to accomplish. And now sunset is approaching and he's sitting under the tree and then this rainstorm comes. So he's delayed from, you know, moving on to try to find someplace else. But he also takes that opportunity to look at a map and find out, okay, crap, where, where am I going to stay for the night? It's getting close to dark. Probably not a good idea for me to just stay outside in an English countryside in the middle of nowhere. Um, he looks at a map, and the closest town where it looks like there could possibly be even an inn is a six mile is six miles away. So he's going to have to walk six miles at, and try to beat the sun. Probably going to have to walk in the dark for quite a ways before he ultimately gets there. So yeah, this is this is like kind of built into the first few um, passages of chapter one is everything that I've described so far. And so he looks at the map. He's already tired <laughs> from walking all day, and now he's going to have to add six more miles to what he hadn't planned. 
And so he's just like, all right, let's go, you know, stiff up, stiff upper lip. And he starts, he starts trudging along and he's getting tired. He's feeling worn out. The sun is starting to set, like there's hills in the distance and <laughs> the sun kind of is starting to disappear over these hills. And like, it's just, it's this foreboding darkness, you know, that's already upon him. And he's walking and walking and walking. And then he sees a faint glimmer of light and like he has some hope. And then as he approaches it, he realizes, oh, it's just this tiny, tiny little cottage here in the countryside. And he's like, because he was hoping, oh, maybe that's a place where I can stay. But it's just like this tiny little shack, basically, is um, the impression that I get from it. And he was walking by, and apparently it's really close to the road because this this lady comes out because she hears him you know, kind of trudging along on the trail and she's expecting someone. So she rushes out and she hopes that it's what we find out. She's hoping for her son to get home from work. And she sees that it's this, this character. And this character, by the way, is described, I find very humorously as a, um, a philologist, which is a, um, a professor or a studier of words. Um, and he is a professor at a college in Cambridge is how it's described. And this character's name is Ransom, which turns out to be his last name. We find out later. And he's a professor of a Cambridge college of words and he's tall and it says he's shabbily dressed and he's round about the shoulders. And Lewis is basically describing himself as this character. He's, he's essentially saying this is him. At least that's how I'm, I'm interpreting it. Uh, this far along in, in the story. And uh, so it's, I just found that very humorous. Um, and this lady comes out, you know, she's expecting her son to be coming home from work and it's, it's getting late. And so when she sees that it's not him, you know, she's, she's upset. And <clears throat> the character starts talking to this lady uh, and she starts talking about how she's worried her son is not home yet from work and we find out that her son is um a little bit mentally challenged he's a little dim or she describes him as as simple so he's a little simple he's a hard worker he's been working up at this farmhouse called the rise r-i-s-e and i'm just so worried about him you know they they work him so hard there uh she's working he's working for um a professor over there um and you know he's usually back by now so i'm just so worried and you know he explains what's going on with him you know i had hoped to stay here um in this town but there just wasn't an opportunity and he says is there any place else is there someplace else you know nearby a, a house that i can stay at and she's like no oh, nothing like what you're looking for and then that's where she described where her son is but you know you know you maybe they could put you up there uh, I don't know if it would be a good place, though. Um, you know, it's not well taken care of. Um, there's there's a lady who used to live there that owned it or that kept it up, but she's Miss Alice, I think is what she says her name is. Miss Alice has since died, and now it's been taken on by the professor and, and his partner, like a, a guy that he works with. And um, she can't really tell him tell him much more about it other than that he's a professor. And this, of course, perks up ransom's ears he's like oh a professor somebody who's in the same you know line of work as me maybe 
I can get in their good graces because, you know, we're, we're of the same sort and maybe they'll be kind enough to offer me a place to stay. And, you know, I'll show up and I'll say, oh yeah, this lady is looking for her son. I'm just coming to check on him. So he gets this whole thing in his mind and she implores on him to, to promise her, please go look for my son and please, you know, get him back home, you know, and, and please make sure that he heads this way because if he, if he just walks out, I think he'll be scared to leave them. You know, he's, he's very, respectful wasn't the word I can't remember, but he's intimidated by them. Yeah. So, you know, he, he won't leave unless they absolutely tell him that it's okay to do so, Uh, but it's time for him to get home. So she's a little shaken. She's a little emotional. So he makes a, he out of compulsion, you know, or out of, uh, he feels like he feels compelled or a little obligated. Oh man, I I need to promise this lady that I'm going to go look for her son, even though I am really just tired and want to find a place to stay, but maybe I can kill two birds with one stone by doing this, you know? So he heads in the direction that uh, she tells him where the, where this place is. And it's, it's getting really dark now. And he can kind of see like this silhouette of what looks like just a, a bunch of trees because he can see the skyline and then he just sees this really dark bunch of trees and he starts to approach it and he realizes that it's, it's a bunch of trees that are actually surrounding the property of a house and there's a gate and he goes up to the gate and he tries to open it and it's locked. It's like crap. And the impression is that these are like really tall trees. This is really a, a fortified, fortified, you know, boundary of trees. And there's, there's no way that he's going to be able to get through. It's basically like a, it's a fence. It's a, it's a walled off what I would call garden, but it's a house. And he's like, Oh, why did I agree to this? <laughs> you know, I don't, he says, what if, what if I'm at the wrong place? And I, you know, he's like, I, I think I can like scooch underneath the trees and get under the gate. And he's wearing a backpack too. And he's like, there's no way I can do it with this backpack on. And so, you know, he's like, all right, I'm going to do it. And he hurls his backpack over the gate and he decides that he's going to scooch under. And he's thinking to himself, what if I'm even in the wrong place? And I just stumble across this old um, uh, recluse hermit guy and it's not even the right house. And then I'm trying to describe, yeah, yeah, I'm looking for this, this lady's dim-witted son. Uh, he hasn't come home from work yet. And the guy's like, dude, I just keep my gates locked at night. Why are you? Why are you coming in here with this crazy story? Uh, and you know, it's just funny these thoughts that are going through his head. So he he throws his pack over, and then he's just like, "Oh man, now I really have to do this. I'm really committed." You know, he's physically committed beyond his verbal commitment to his mother. Yeah, he's like, "I have to go get it now," and he squeezes himself underneath and. And the way that this is described, you know, it, it harkens me back to whenever I was a kid or any time that I've tried to squeeze through like trees in like a wooded area and you start getting scraped by, <laughs> by the branches and you get these little cuts and all these thorns and thistles that he describes and he gets through and he's like smarting from all this and he's like, I'm really upset that I did this now. Good English uh, word, smarting. Yeah, smarting is the word I think that he does use. Um, and so now he's inside the foyer of this, this area and he can see like a, a driveway that kind of forks off in two directions. One driveway like leads to um, the porch of the front of the house and another driveway kind of leads off to the back and he can also see like smoke kind of billowing up from the back of the house. And you're like, oh, that's curious. Um, <laughs> 
And so he's like, all right, I'm going to go up to the porch. Uh, the, the house is made of stone. It's covered in moss. Uh, the lawn has not been kept. So it's just like the whole place is like in, you know, it's been, it's been uh, dilapidated is the wrong word, but it's just not, you know, it's not been kept up. Derelict. So what was that word again? Derelict. Derelict. There you go. Dilapidated, derelict. I get those two confused. Um, so he goes up to the porch. Uh, he either knocks on the door or he rings. <laughs> I can't remember what he does, but he just sits there and he waits and nobody answers. And it's starting to get cool. You know, the, the chill of night is coming on and there's a bench and he's tired. He's sore and he's tired from walking all day. You know, he's long past when he thought he was going to be laying down for bed for the night. So he sees a bench and he's just like, ugh. He sits down on the bench. The next thing you know, he falls asleep. And he's awoken by uh, yelling. <laughs> by yelling and people wrestling is how it's described. And he then, you know, was like startled and he was like, whoa, what is, what is going on? It's coming from the back of the house. And the thing that alerts him to jump to his feet and go rushing to the back of the house is he hears somebody saying, let me go, <laughs> let me go. Um, and he starts running. Uh, he jumps off the porch and he runs to the other part of the driveway and he says it's, um, he says it's like kind of, it kind of looks like it's got ruts in it from where big trucks have been carrying large loads of stuff. And it's like kind of muddy. And he's like running in between the, the puddles and trying to get to the back of the house. And as he approaches the back of the house, he hears more. He's like, I'm not going. I'm not going to go in there again. Don't put me back in there or something like that. And he sees the smoke billowing uh, and it's coming from a chimney and he can see like a firelight of a furnace. And it's also, like I said, it's dark. So all he can really see is like, he sees the silhouette of this dome which he takes to be like an observatory. And then his attention is taken, taken away from all that because he, he sees three people, three men. One of them turns out to be the boy of the lady. His name is Harry. Uh, she's looking for her son, Harry, to come home. Uh, there are these other two men and they both like, they're holding him, like they're you know, restraining him. And uh, he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Stop it, leave that guy alone. And then one of the guys, the, 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 two, the two guys that are restraining him, one is described as like kind of tall and slender and the other is more kind of stocky and stout. The tall and slender one we come to find out is a character named Divine, D-E-V-I-N-E. -E. That's his last name. Or Jeff. <laughs> the other, yeah, yes. Me and Divine have many similar character qualities as we'll, as do I and as we'll find out. The other character. The other character's name is Weston. Right. Uh, we don't learn a whole lot about Weston, but we do. We, you know, Lewis just sprinkles in a couple of little side comments that are like, wow, okay, we start to learn things about these characters immediately. Mm -hmm. So Divine immediately says, what the devil are you doing here? Who are you? Or something like that. You know, starts interrogating Ransom right away because you have broken into a private <laughs> residence. You know, you just kind of helped yourself in to this locked, <laughs> you made it past a locked gate. And uh, he's like, uh, I, I wanna say, he says, well, I heard, I heard shouting. <laughs> mm. uh, but no, he, he does explain, he's like, no, 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 
I'm on a walking tour of the English countryside. He's trying to be, he's trying to reasonably explain, you know, hey, here's why I'm here, guys. I'm not a crazy intruder. Mm-hmm. Before he can even explain it, they just interrupt him. Uh, the, the stocky guy, Weston, he's like, we should have, we should have a dog. <laughs> that would have stopped, prevented something like this. And yeah. then Vine, the tall guy, he, this is where you learn a little bit. He says, we would have a dog had you not, had we not experimented on Tartar, is <laughs> what they say the name of the dog that they had was. You know, so apparently they've, they've lost a dog in some kind of experiment. You still don't know what's going on. And they continue talking. And then Divine immediately realizes that he recognizes Ransom. Um, and he lets go of Harry. Weston's still holding like Harry by the collar. Still holding him. And he starts talking to him and he's like, he, he says, my name is Ransom. And he's like, Ransom? Ransom of such and such school? And they find out that uh, they, they went to school together. So they do know each other. And so Divine all of a sudden is just very pleased or appears to be very pleased to see him. And he's just like, oh, Ransom. Yes, you're, you're the famous philologist. This is Weston. He's the famous uh, physicist or something like that. And he just starts giving very fluffy and flowy, you know, um, like uh, um, flattery, flattery uh, uh, description of Weston. And then when he's trying to introduce Weston to Ransom, he tries to do very, you know, tries to flatter him as well. And Weston cuts him off and says, I don't care. I just want to know why he's here and more importantly, how soon he's leaving. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they talk for a bit and, and then Ransom says, you know, hey, I, w- I was just sent here by this, by this kid's mom, you know, by this guy's mom. She wants me, she's really worried about him. She wants him to come home. And he's like, oh yes, of course. You know, we were about to send him home. Um, it's just that he got very spooked or very upset um, because he got locked in the lavatory by accident earlier today. And so that's what he was talking about. And uh, he's like, and then the, the hairy guy, he speaks up and he says, that's not what I was worried about. I don't want to go in there. And he's referencing some other place, you know. And uh, so Ransom's just kind of like, what's going on? But he's also listening to Divine, you know, make his case for, oh, no, no, no. He's just, he's just a little worked up. You know what? Um, let, we'll let you take him home to his mom, and then you know what? You can come back here and stay for the night. But first, come inside for a drink. We need to let Harry settle down because there's no way he's going to go anywhere with anyone until he's calm. So let's let him calm down a little bit. You come in for a drink. Uh, settle down with us. We'll catch up a little bit, and then you can walk him back home. You know, everything will be fine, and then you can come here and stay. And I think I may be missing a few little details, but that's essentially where chapter one wraps up, where Ransom is also thinking, you know, this sounds really strange. And everything that's happened so far, it's funny, Lewis breaks the fourth fourth wall a little bit. He says, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of stuff that only happens in fiction. (laughs) This is a thought that runs through Ransom's head. Uh, To find a, a physicist and somebody that you used to go to school with and a simpleton who, you know, is upset and all yeah. of these things have come together. He's like, this is, this is only the sort of thing that happens in fiction. And he's like, and there's, there's something that seems like there's a crime going on here, but at the same time, you know, I really am tired and I could use a drink and I'd like to sit down. And yeah, so this, this is how chapter one of the space trilogy ends. And 
you know, I just like to, I know you've been having a thousand thoughts, Luke, since we've been going through this, hopefully. Um, but at least this, this is the aim of our first conversation is just to hopefully go chapter by chapter and just kind of talk through what right. things stood out to us. And I, I've sprinkled in a couple of things that have stood out to me. So I want to give you a chance now. All right. Yeah. And I will try to not, um, I had many thoughts that then connect to things that, you know, that I know from well into the series. And then, cause it's interesting. One of the most interesting things is how you, upon subsequent readings and even upon your retelling here, how things pop out, how you see more. And this speaks to what I initially said, how fiction is so full of content that you, um, when you're relisting the things or seeing things in retrospect, new things pop out and are salient, you know? Um, and so even in the character descriptions or in like one of the things that I wrote, um, was like Weston Divine's dialogue. And once you really know the characters from later on in the series and then on reading it multiple times, it is really interesting to go back and just think about the dialogue and how much, like it's almost, it's almost as if everything that you learn later is there initially. Mm. It's all there. Yeah, you're, you're, just, getting, you're getting low resolution snippets. And then the resolution starts to heighten as you have more interaction. And it's almost, that's the way that it is with real people that you get to know through more and more conversations and interactions right. and spending time with and seeing how they react to things. Right. And, but it's almost as if oh God, uh, there's things that I've learned through Lewis's space trilogy that I want to bring in now to explain things that I would say. Yeah. Like, just, just so everybody knows one of the, one of the limits that I've tried to place on Luke is I don't want to spoil anything. Cause I do want to encourage people to read these books. And if right. I, I'd like you to go back through and read this chapter after either before or after you watch this video either way but before right. we move on to chapter two because i i want i want you guys to experience it as well and then add things into the comments and right. you know we can i don't know we can just see other things that stand out to other people too right and so i don't want to and that's part of the beauty of fiction is it it's so so is that it teaches you things that you don't even know you can't articulate it, it gives you it almost trans so like speaking of Michael Polanyi, it almost transcends the focal integration. It's like, you don't have to focus on it. It almost just like integrates it subconsciously. Yeah. It gets you past the watchful dragons, as Lewis said, which is why he started writing fiction anyhow to begin with when it's good. And Michael Polanyi, just cause we haven't referenced it at all in this oh, shit. Part of the conversation. <laughs> it's just like, that's a separate, that's a separate topic, but Google that Michael Polanyi, Esther Meek, Drew Johnson. This is all ritual knowing kind of stuff. It's different. This is something that Luke, it's epistemology. How yeah. do we know what we know? Yeah. Yeah. Something that Luke has been thinking a lot about. We might do a different conversation on that. We right. Should. So, but yeah. So, so that's the thing that's interesting is how it's, it's almost as, so there's two things. So part of it is how their dialogue, once you, once you know who they are, you realize, well, you kind of always knew who they were. Like, and this gets into almost kind of like an intuitive knowing mm. it. You just don't have it fully fleshed out and articulated in your head. But when you go back and you read the initial dialogue, you're like, Oh, who, the, who they evolved to be in your own understanding, you know, right away. Mm -hmm. And I think almost Luke ransom, the character knew right away too. And so that's part of the thing that's, um, 
interesting to me. Um, one of the other big things that I wanted to point out was, um, and, th and this continues throughout the whole series, but I think one of the things that Lewis is brilliant about is that he, he captures very well Ransom's internal monologue or dialogue or what Paul would call like the consciousness Congress. Mm. That happens so much. It's just yeah. most of the books is probably really Ransom's inner psychology. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about different parts later and it just this book where I'm just like, yeah, that's exactly right. You do get to hear. There is one part where it's where his consciousness Congress is almost personified. Like he's, having two different conversations. I'm jumping ahead though. I won't jump ahead. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's really, it's really, um, I think Lewis does a very good job, um, being very honest of those internal conversations of things that you're thinking. And like, even his, you know, walking along the way and being tired and, and wanting to go forward and like the, the debates that you have in your head all the time. Lewis illustrates those brilliantly. And then what's telling too, and I'll just allude to this, I won't give it away, but like when you keep going on in the books, as you get into the second book and especially the third book, it becomes explicit in the third book. So when you start to, me. Sorry. Sorry. You start to realize though, these internal monologues that you're happening by the time you've read the third book, you start to realize like, Oh, you start to see those in a very new light. Um, and, and you could take light there to be kind of a, have a double meaning, uh, by the time you get to the third book. But, um, so to, so just to, to bring it back to the first chapter for a second, is there, <laughs> is there, no, that's, it's perfectly fine. Is there anything else like in that, in that series of events or how you remember encountering that part of the story that's like, that stuck out to you? Um, <clears throat> no, not necessarily. The only, the only thing that I remember, I remember that that's when the book, that's when the book gripped me. Cause you know, all books, when you start a fictional book, it, you have to, you have to get into the story. Mm. You know, that's where the work is involved is you have to be captured. Your imagination has to be captured into the story. Yeah. And that's where it happened to me in the first book is, you know, there's this guy on a walking tour or whatever. I mean, you're just like, at what point does it pique your interest? And by the time he's like, he talks to the woman and he goes to this house and the way he's describing it all, by the time he's like going through the bush, like I'm starting to get interested, you know, the hedge mm -hmm. and, I'm starting to get interested and then he falls asleep and all of a sudden he's awoken to this stuff and he's running around. And that's when all the, I mean, a lot of the space, the trilogy, I mean, it's almost, there's thriller aspects to it yeah. too. I almost think of it in terms of, I think a lot of Lewis's books could be made into film and could be done really well by the right people. But, um, so that's the wink, only other thing I would wink, say. Wink, wink. He's not watching, but, um, Dr. Nathan Jacobs, we know you make <sighs> movies. Nathan Jacobs and Indy Wilson collaboration. Yes. Great divorce and this trilogy. Yeah. Bring in like Christopher Nolan too. He'd be good on that. <laughs> Let's just blow it up. Um, so, so that would be the probably the last thing that I would say that I, that at least is coming right to mind is that's the point when I was just kind of engaged into the story. Um, 
but all these, all the like brilliance that is interwoven into the story that I think is intentionally there. Um, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I didn't see a lot of this stuff till much later. Mm. Well, um, one of the things, one of the things that happens to me when I do read stories, um, is sometimes like this happens to me with music too. Sometimes, but sometimes with stories, is oh, I wish that the I wish that the story would have gone in this direction instead. Like sometimes it's where my imagination runs before I know what's going to happen with the story, and the stories that disappoint me are the ones that fall short of where my imagination was going. Mm. The stories that um, get me really excited are the ones that subvert my imagination and go like someplace where that I wasn't imagining that is way yeah. better. Yeah. My favorites. Yeah. Um, and so I did, I did find myself the first time that I read through the entire space trilogy, particularly that hideous strength is that it, it fell short of where my imagination was going for it. Like I was, I was, I was hopeful or I was anticipating something that was really going to go beyond my expectations or my imagination. And it didn't happen. That doesn't mean that it's a bad story. It just means that uh, it wasn't getting, it wasn't grabbing me where, you know, I was wanting to be grabbed. Grabbed. (laughs) 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 It wasn't pulling out the heartstrings, Luke. That's what I'm trying to say. Get your mind out of the gutter. That's what I was thinking too. (laughs) Um, uh, but, and this, this happens on a very small scale too. So it's not like, Oh, the whole story is just in the trash can for me or anything like that. Um, one of the things that happened, sometimes this goes in a good direction for me. It's just like, huh, this could maybe branch off into a completely different story or you could tell different stories off of this. And, and one of those just little side trail rabbit holes for me or rabbit trails was, um, the, the mother of the the guy who's working for these two for divine and weston we come to find out their names are in the end of this first chapter she references this this house that they're at and ransom actually asks her oh would it be a good place to stay and she's talking about how you know how derelict it is how it hasn't been kept up and she's like no it wouldn't be it there there aren't any servants there just my boy Harry, who takes care of the furnace. That's it. And she says it hasn't been kept up. And I mentioned this earlier since uh, I don't know if I said the name since Miss Alice died. Yeah. And that just took my brain off into curiosity of, well, huh? I wonder who this character Miss Alice was and what her relation is to Weston and mine. Hmm. Is she a mother? Is she an aunt? Is she someone that? to give away a little bit about divine, you know, it's just where my brain went. Is this somebody that divine had maybe Eddie Haskell his way, flattered his way into her good graces and maybe got written into her will, you know, mm. is this somebody that they're related to, you know, just wondering, man, how did they come about acquiring this house? You know, just little things like that. No, that's a great, that's a great thought because I mean, that would speak, and that's, a, I don't know, I hadn't ever even considered that, but that's, that's something that I almost, that I'd be very confident was in the mind of Lewis. Yeah. You know, that's like a, just a subtle, it's, it's not even a, it's not explicitly talked about at all, but 
yeah. but it's indirectly there, I think. Yeah. In, um, in one of Lewis's essays, I think it's called The World's Last Night, where he's talking about how we face the prospect of the end of the world. Um, and particularly, you know, even in a secular frame, the, the heat death of the universe, you know, what science has told us so far is that everything is just coming to an end and everything's going to be utter black darkness and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's off topic. But in that essay, he talks about how we don't know. <clears throat> it, he, see, he kind of pictures us as characters in a play and the only bit of the story or the, the play that we know is our part on the stage we don't know the behind the scenes. We don't know the importance of each character. And that just made me think of, you know, this Miss yeah. Alice and how, you know, for us and the story that we're watching up on the stage, she's just like a, an afterthought, like just a character that's mentioned to drive this, this larger narrative. And so we don't know uh, who the characters are, who's the, who's the star, who's the, who are the minor characters, who are the supporting characters, you know, what, what role are they playing in the story? And, um, so it, it just reminded me of that. There's, there's more profundity to the point that Lewis was making in the world's last night there. And I'd like to go back and revisit that sometime, but it just, it just reminded me of that, right? She's, she's just this, this Miss Alice is somebody who died. It also even makes me think, you know, did, did they poison her? Did they kill her to acquire this house? You know, I'm, I'm giving away a little bit more about these two character that I, I'm not intending to, but the <laughs> thoughts that cropped up. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to think about. I feel like I have um, something connected to that, but it's on the it's on the periphery of my consciousness, and I can't lay hold of it. So, well, another thing um, that's described in the first chapter is this is this is a this is a remote area that they're in. Um, yeah, he, he makes the he makes the offhanded comment uh, in the story. Uh, as he's as uh, the narrator as Lewis is describing it um, he says it's when he's talking about maybe I'll just maybe I'll be at the wrong house and I'll just come across an old guy who likes to keep his doors locked in the in the English countryside where there's nobody around is like why would you he's he's kind of setting up the why this is a place where nobody locks their doors basically Mm. coming across a locked gate is very suspicious you know, and it's so it's lending itself to when Ransom has the thought of, I, I yeah. feel like I'm witnessing some kind of crime here. And so that just makes me also suspect, oh, my gosh, did they just break into this lady's house and and kill her? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and there's the <clears throat> that speaks to, I think, kind of how I was saying <clears throat> that Lewis, you could almost think of these books as thrillers in a sense, or you could put that kind of. I think of it as a movie, like you could put that kind of uh, like directorial uh, twist toward it. But I think all that kind of stuff is, is, in, is embedded in there because there is that tension. Lewis, a lot, you do feel that tension of like just those little subtle things. And this is where I think Lewis is, a, is a, I mean, he's obviously a gifted linguist uh, with his words. And I mean, he's most... I mean, Narnia, people know him for that, but even that's much more deep and nuanced and complex than a lot of, I mean, there's a lot there. Mm. Um, I think the Space Trilogy is more so, because like that's really, like that's his child version. This is his adult version, main um, 
stories, but that tension, Lewis is a very subtle, um, so it's one of those things that you feel like that's, that's kind of the playfulness that I think is in this first chapter is that again, there's things I think that you intuitively know that you're feeling and, and Lewis is hinting at it. You know, yeah. he's hinting at the discomfort in this guy's own internal dialogues. Well, there's a, there's a foreboding too, right? You know, yeah. as you read through it more, you know, he's, he's approaching sunset and he's yeah. supposed to be someplace else. Yeah. And darkness is falling. Right. Yeah. And it continues to fall. He comes across this lady who's fraught about yeah. her son being gone. And then he, yes. he gets to this place where it's, it's a lot, it's a locked gate out in the countryside that has no reason to be locked. And right. he goes in and he finds basically a, a house that's died, you know, it's yeah. not being kept up. Um, he, it, it was, it's a dead lady's house, right? Yeah. Um, he sees dark smoke billowing from the back. <laughs> yeah. It's a very foreboding, you know, it's a dark cops. And that's another word I learned through Lewis. Cops yeah, me too. I had no idea what cops meant. <clears throat> and as I, as I read through it again in preparation for our talk today, cops is what he thought he saw. Um, mm. cops is just like this natural growth of trees bunched together. But yeah. as he approached it, he saw, Oh no, no, no. These are trees that are, this isn't natural. This yeah. is, this is man-made designed, designed yeah. Uh, barrier yeah. instead of a, a natural growth. So I want to put this in as just like a, as like a um, hyperlinked bookmark that we can come back to just so it's in here. Cause what I was thinking of, and I alluded to this earlier that it's interesting to, to think about these dialogues and your internal conversations and these human interactions in light of things that happen later in the series. But I was just thinking of, and I never thought of this before as you were talking of how this first chapter, I'm making a note of what you're saying right oh, now. So like this first chapter parallels the first chapter in that hideous strength, I think, or is it, is it that hideous strength or is it Paralandra? Where there's where there's also a man walking up to a to a house at night. You're thinking of Paralandra, yeah. Okay, but they're the same kind of thing. Yeah, and but yet, but yet and you can, know so much more at that point. And we can jump ahead. You you referenced Indy Wilson earlier. He does a great. Uh, he does a talk. Indy Wilson has a talk out on YouTube. I can't remember if the Space Trilogy was the focus of it, but he's talking. His the focus of the talk is Lewis. And he says that Lewis essentially wrote the same book twice. He wrote Out of the Silent Planet, and then he wrote Paralandra, and he just did more in Paralandra that he wanted to do in Out of the Silent Planet. But essentially, they're the same book. Which, well, that's what's true. Yeah, it's a, it's a different story. Yeah, it's a different story, but it's but doing... This is, like the, this the is how we've talked about like Karen, Karen Wong, or, um, or I really resonated this. This is like... I'll go off on a philosophical tangent, but this is like the, the duality, non-duality, universality, but also um, particularity that's kind of inherent within everything. It's like, yes, it's the same story. Because in a sense, every, everything is the same story. Like he's, he's, what, I think what Lewis is trying to convey, what he's trying to teach, the point of what he's trying to get at, of which the story is the vehicle, is, is bull, is in both but there's different details happening mm. 
But like, this is the thing, this is the spirit that's underneath all these different manifestations. And so in that sense, the book is the same, you know, it's the, um, anyhow, sorry. I think I interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. I can't even remember what I was saying. So it's not important. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, oh yeah, I was just talking about how it's all, it's just, it's very foreboding, the buildup. And yeah. then you get to him actually been interacting with these two characters and Weston just wants him out of there. Weston seems to be about something else. He's got a, a task on his mind, this yeah. is an interruption. And in a certain sense, he's right. <laughs> Somebody's broken into his home, you know, yeah. purposes. This is their home. Right. The ones that are there. Um, he almost doesn't even he like I don't even know if he directly addresses ransom this and this is um, it's characteristic of Weston I think but I think this is if I remember rightly in the in the chapter is that he'll often just ignore people yes and he just like talks as if they're not there but about them yeah. like Weston is very like that's it's very much the contrast between Weston divine of which you see glimpses of in this first chapter is Divine is a flatterer. He mm -hmm. is verbose. Yep. He's personable. He's likable. He's chatty. He's, yeah. You find out he's a good looking guy, I think, down the road. Weston is like, Weston is a very focused, probably low in agreeableness, very um, direct idealist of a certain sort. Like mm -hmm. he's not, there's no, in a sense, there's no falsehood in Weston. Right. And this, and this gets to like uh, something that's talked about later in the series about this, the, the spiritual state mm -hmm. of those two and which is actually more dangerous. Yeah. Uh, but Weston is, Weston is in pure in heart of a, of a certain way <laughs> in a yeah. certain sense. And we'll, and we'll say, we'll save that um, because we will get to see these things and get to talk hopefully uh, as we keep doing <laughs> get to talk a lot more about some of these things that stick out as, as we learn, as, um, sure. as these characters begin to reveal themselves yeah. as the story unfolds. Um, let's see on, on divine. I think there was just one more point in this particular scene, right? He D divine is a, is a schemer. He's a flatterer and a schemer. schemer. And as soon as he, as soon as he recognizes, um, Ransom, he's he, his his uh, his priorities shift. He has, I'm pro I don't know if I'm using the term right, but to use a, a Ravaki term, he had he is he realizes relevance, mm. right? He yeah. realizes relevance when he recognizes ransom. I did not mean to be alliterative there. That was not intentional. <laughs> Just comes to you. Your gift happens. Um, he uh. He's like right away, but he, he turns on his charm and you know, I'm, I'm periscoping, periscoping, telescoping a little bit because I know what's going on here. I've, I've read the book, but just, yeah. you know, he immediately just latches on to, Oh, I'm, I really need to, to bring, uh, I need to bring ransom into, I need to lull him into security. Yeah. Oh, can I jump in quick? Yeah. So like this is, so this is, as we're talking this through, and this is why I was so excited to do this series with you is because 
I don't know. I think you, I don't know. I find a particular, um, I think that we have complementary skill sets <laughs> in a way that you, you, your gifting somehow allows me to work through things and realize things that I didn't even know. So like what I've, what I've been realizing most and just us talking about this whole thing is that, and, and you were just outlining it or explaining it, giving language to what I think is underneath it is that even of what you were saying of divine and, and what divine was doing and what he realized in his relevance realization as he recognized ransom. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you remembered that. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> as you, uh, as you were saying that, this is the thing that I that I think is is embedded in the book, but I think is true to all of life. And this gets at some of Owen Barfield's stuff because Lewis Newbart. I mean, obviously he strongly was influenced by him, yeah. but also even Rudolf Steiner and a little bit of um, who was a big influence of Owen Barfield and also his uh, uh, what's the word? I can't ever say this word anyhow, even if I could see it. Um, but his uh, theosophy okay um is that what what you learn oh can i can i pause you for just a second yeah can you give just a quick definition of theosophy or is that what you were yeah i'll try to i'm gonna get there so what what i think you realize of of divine is that he is a schemer and he realizes this right away and he goes to move to start manipulating his environment because he sees opportunity but, but he's, a, he's a mechanistic thinker. He sees opportunity for something that he can use, right? He wants to use things toward his own purposes, mm-hmm. which even saying that, using this language within this whole Jordan Peterson phenomenon, like it's dangerous to use thing toward your own purposes because it's really easy to be that kind of manipulative. Jordan Peterson, you don't know what you want. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, and if you knew what you want, it's just, it's dangerous. That's why you just tell the truth. Don't George, try to, don't George try. McDonald says that same thing. Huh? George McDonald says, we don't know what we want. You know? Right. So don't try to manipulate things because you might end up giving yourself something that you thought you wanted, but you end up realizing it's not what you wanted. It's a yeah. it's great divorce thing, actually. Yeah. So what, but what I'm realizing is that, th- and this gets to like Dr. Nathan Jacobs, because he will watch this. You already yeah. talked about it. Hey, Dr. Jacob. Um, hey, buddy. Um, <laughs> we know that this is the intuitive mind. So this is like, um, what's the movie they always talk, um, that Nathan Jacobs and Paul talked about? Um, oh, uh, uh, whatever. It'll come to me. But like reaching the nuns, all those videos, is that a big thing of what's, been lost in the West versus the East is, is it's been a complete disregard for the intuitive kind of knowing that we have. But what I would argue is like, even this stuff with divine, I would say that if, if we attuned ourselves in a, in, in like a practice way, which apparently there's, there are habits and rituals that you can do practices that you can, I, I looked this up once. There's some Life guy itself. that teaches, the, huh? Life itself, sorry. Life itself, yes. But there's like an ongoing theosophical um, um, group, academy or something that teaches you practices where you can hone these skills. 
And I would say, because all of, one of the biggest things I realized through the space trilogy is there's things that we know and that we intuit that you know on an intuitive level that isn't articulated. But that's what I would argue with like this divine stuff. When I would argue that everyone who reads this book knows who divine is instantly. Mm. You know who he is intuitively. You just don't consciously realize it until much later. Maybe it'll take you four times reading the book yeah. before you realize it. But I would argue you know right away. And I think this is what Steiner, Rudolf Steiner was, I think this is what he said and, and Barfield played with, and I don't know exactly what Barfield thought about it, but I think Steiner argued that like there are practices where you can hone that skill where you can get better at your intuition, where like you can basically, um, you can basically learn to practice in such a way that you can eliminate that huge time gap where like you can hone into those intuitions where you can basically see things. You're in, I would argue it's what Lewis calls like his inner man, which he gets into in Paralandra. I don't think this is a spoiler, but like toward the end of the Paralandra and the voice, it's the difference between the voluble self, the chatty voice inside your head mm-hmm. and your inner man. That, that is the truth telling honest voice. That's always oriented, right. That is inside all of us in the, a sense. The essential you. Yeah. It's, I think part of that at least is the, is the icon of God, the still small voice, the, the truth that's inside all of us that if, that if we, by practice of telling the truth all the time, align ourselves more in line of, and this is the this is the panentheism that I'm always trying to get Paul about. It's the God that's <laughs> everywhere and inside all of us. It's the spirit. The kingdom of God is within you, type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have those intuitions that are true. We just have to practice to learn how to hear it and pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And is that what, is that what the word theosophy, that's it? That's a big it's like, part of it. It's like yeah. you becoming more, if I can put it into Christian language for a second, you becoming more, uh, growing more into the image of Christ. Yeah. I think it, I think it's the kind of thing where like, you know, speak the truth or at least don't lie. The more you speak the truth, the more you align yourself with truth, the more you align yourself. This is kind of the, the quote I always go to with Lewis too, and the magician's nephew, what you see in here depends a lot upon where you're standing. It also depends upon the kind of person you are. When you, the more you become holy, the desert becomes heaven. Mm. Your world, your world, your representations to use a Barfield term will be transformed. Your whole, the whole world becomes, you won't, it, in, in terms of Loris, it's almost as if you get a vision and can participate now. This is like what an Orthodox liturgy is with, you can participate currently in the final reconciliation of all things in the kingdom of God, because it's, because it's all here. It's like, a, it's just a perspectival shift. It's yes. always there. You're just yes. seeing in a different yeah. way. Yeah. And part of that is aligning yourself with that true inner man that I think our intuition in as much as it's the true intuition and not our misguided manipulative inner voice, but like that true intuition that's in line with the true good and the beautiful and the honesty, because I think, and I think we have that sense. I I'm learning to recognize it more all the time. There's, I mean, you have to, 
you have to be open to being wrong, obviously. Like, you can't say, like, I've intuited this instantly and it's right, you know. <laughs> um, but I think there's always things that we, like Paul says, we know more than we know. Mm. And I think sometimes what I'm recognizing in this chapter is I think that you, I think all of us, in a way, recognize all this stuff instantly. It just takes us a while to figure it out. Yeah. In a conscious way. I think, I think that's right. And and yeah, because just, just walking through the images in my mind of the first chapter, because that's what I was doing. I'm actually picturing how my mind drew the pictures, how, how the story was drawn in my mind's eye as I'm walking through it again. And, you know, it just starts to bring up all these other things. Like if if I'm closing my eyes and I'm watching myself, uh, envision, like all of these things, it's almost like being virtual reality. It's almost like being there in the scene. And yeah. I was finding myself like turning and, and looking at things hmm. that I really just hadn't noticed before when I had read it the first time. Cause I'm also listening to the audio book. I'm taking it in, in different ways. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, so just doing that, it's starting to reveal more and more things about these characters that I intuitively, they, they were already in there. Yeah. I am, they're being revealed, but I'm also recognizing them. And I heard, um, I heard Bishop Barron talk about the word recognize, and then he broke it down and he said recognize. It's to rethink something that's already been thought. Flipping oh. language, it's already there. Yes, it's already there. That's how you. That's how you're recognizing anything. Is you're you're re or you're you're rethinking something that has been thought before. Maybe you hadn't seen it before, but another mind had already processed it and you are now reprocessing it shout out rupert sheldrake morphic fields (laughs) um one i don't know i haven't been watching the clock so i don't know how long this this recording has been so far i don't know i feel like i haven't achieved anything if we haven't gone at least one hour (laughs) (laughs) but i mean if you have more to say we should do it but also sometimes i think sometimes shorter videos are better because like when you have just all these people in the Paul Vanderclay world, they're just like, I have, I have like 10 videos every day that are two, that are an hour plus. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I have other things I have to do with my life. Well, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to feed those people who have the need as well. I know some people just listen while they're doing their work, right? While right. Driving, no, a truck or driving a forklift, shout out Joe Lars, Dri- <laughs> welding, shout out Julian. Um, (laughs) just doing other things, coding, shout out, Joe, um, playing with your goats, shout out, Sherry, (laughs) shout out, out Sherry, um, herding cats, shout out, Sarah. Yes. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to extend just for the, just for extension's sake, but I did, I did have one other thing that stood out to me, um, that I just wanted to to talk about for a second. It's it's at the very end. Um, but to lead into it, I'll talk about, uh, Jordan Peterson in his maps of meaning lectures. I can't remember which one it was, but it's, it's his series, uh, that he did in the nineties back at Harvard, where he's got like the, the business in the front party in the back mullet. Um, (laughs) those are some really fun. Those are some really fun videos to watch and listen to if you have time, but he talks about in maps of meaning, how we have a goal in mind 
And once we've, once we've aimed towards that goal, anything that gets in the way of it, like frustrates us. Um, try to overcome those things until ultimately we can't reach that goal anymore. And if that goal just becomes unachievable, you know, whatever it is that's stopping us, if we cannot get past it, you know, we have to realign and we have to aim for something different. Mm. Um, so, uh, that just reminded me in a very simple way of the, the embodiment of that that plays out at this, this last little scene here at the end of the chapter or coming close to the end of the chapter. Um, when divine has that relevance recognition of, Oh, this is ransom. And the relevance of ransom is something else that we'll learn about in the next chapter but why it's relevant to him, mm -hmm. the, the fact that his goal yeah. changes. Like, he, this is still serving his overall goal, but one of his sub-goals is we're trying to wrestle this, this kid, Harry, into doing something that he doesn't want to do. Mm. And we'll, we'll learn what that is in the next chapter. But you can see it embodied where his sub-goal shifts when he recognizes Ransom because he physically lets him go. Yeah. Winston does not have this relevance realization because Lewis describes he's still holding him by the collar saying, I don't care who Ransom is, I want to know when he's leaving. So yeah. that, that sub-goal has shifted for Divine and he sees that Ransom, and maybe this is a good place to end it, he sees that Ransom can serve the greater purpose of what he and Weston are trying to achieve right. than Harry could. Right. It's almost as if Weston doesn't even, and this probably speaks to his idealism and almost what I was calling his purity, um, is that he, it's almost as if he doesn't have sub goals. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's like, he's got a goal. Yeah, that's it. Whereas, whereas divine is, Divine, Divine's a wheeler dealer, and so he's got all these sub-goals, and he's got a final goal, but even what's weird is, and this probably speaks to, to the thing I alluded to earlier also, which was sleep bag and meaningless for everyone, but, except for us. Uh, but he, um, it almost speaks, even his final goal, which he and Weston share, which is why they're, you know, working together on this project, um, that's not even really his goal. Like you find out what his goal is later down the road, which yeah. is really much simpler, um, much more base in a sense. Um, it's it's more it's more. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. It's it's um, it's naked and honest and divine. His goals are far from that. Yes, yes, but in a way, almost makes them. It makes them easier and and almost more redemptive in a way. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're on, like he, I would argue he doesn't even know. No, no. What his goals are. Divine, we're talking about. Divine, you're right. Whereas Weston does, like he's not, he has, he, he's aware where he's going. Yeah. And, uh, and he's fully conscious of it. Maybe that's it. He's conscious of his direction and it's wrongly oriented. And so yeah. when you... Um, yeah, that's all interesting. Even, I mean, I wanted to bring in, we can just leave it there, but as you were talking about goals and sub goals, what that made me think of, we can bring this in cause this is another little 
sub world in Paul's channel, but made me think of Jonathan Edwards, freedom of the will. Like that's what mainly that book is about is like he are in his argument for how the will is bound and how it's free is that it's free to its desires and its chief desires. And there's all these sub desires that move around. But he said, your, your chief desire is what you're aiming toward. I mean, it's a very Petersonian idea actually. And hmm. you can't, you can't have freedom outside of that. There is no such a thing. Yeah. Like you can't be free outside of your chief end. Like that's where everything that you do is oriented. Yeah. Um, it's, it's what's at the top of the hierarchy. Yep. Yep. And so that's why like, sorry, shout out to Esther. But uh, when you, if you want to argue libertarian freedom, that like you're free outside of what's at the top of your hierarchy. I don't know. Explain that to me. Cause it doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but that's, that's Arminianism in a nutshell. So, <laughs> and I'm not a Calvinist either. So anyhow, <laughs> well, maybe that's where we end. We end uh, chapter one with Luke is not a Calvinist and we'll see where that takes us, we'll see where that takes us as we uh, read uh, chapter two next time, or not as we read it, as that's I retell as I retell chapter two and then we talk Retelling. about it. That seems like a very, yeah, we got to get our like PBS, SNL. What are, what is that talk show? The, the Sherry O'Terry and Molly Shannon used to do. Do you remember that one? Oh, is it the, I can't remember. We'll have and to. And then Alec Baldwin came on and did a sweaty balls thing, but they have those really <laughs> like. Their radio show. Their radio show where they have the PBS voices and they're just like retelling. Yeah. <laughs> Re retelling with randos i think we just came up with this this series <laughs> good one we're just killing alliteration you are i should say i just the collective we yeah all, right. all right well i'll uh i'll stop it here and uh until next time i know everybody's on the edge of their seats for us to talk about chapter two so until, until next time we'll catch you guys later reading with randos